God doesn't just recognize the pastors that hold meetings above 10,000 people or the evangelists that have saved thousands of lives through the gospel or the missionary that's won entire villages for the, for the cause of Christ. And he does recognize those people. But God knows the hearts and lives of every believer. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This past Thursday, we were able to honor and uh, honor Remembrance Day. A day where we remember, of course, those who have fought for our country, those who are fighting and, and have in the past. On Thursday, uh, perhaps many of you did the same. We woke up, we went... Uh, this year, of course, we uh, stayed online, but we were able to watch the Cloverdale online uh, uh, ceremony. And near the end, they had this memorial and they had people representing come forward and lay wreaths down. And for one such, I guess, uh, scenario, they had those who had who have fallen victim of being a prisoner of war represent. Uh, prisoner of war would come forward and lay wreaths down in front of this memorial. So they had two gentlemen come forward and represent the POWs of war. And these two gentlemen both were 100 years old. And they fought in, the, in World War II. And as they were slowly walked forward, they didn't want anybody to help them. They had their uniforms on. And it was just a really neat sight and to watch them walk forward and lay the, those wreaths down. And as they'd walk forward, the, uh, the uh, MC would be telling their story of how, uh, how they fought and where they served. And one of the older gentlemen, as he was walking forward with his wreath, the MC was telling a story and said that he was flying. He was a, a fighter pilot. He was, he was a pilot flying his, an airplane uh, over Italy when his airplane got shot down. And as it was coming down, he had to literally eject himself out of the airplane and he parachutes, he lands in Italy and he was captured for six months until the war was over. And just sitting there thinking, wow, 100 years old, still lives to this day to tell that story. There's so many stories, thousands and thousands of stories of brave men and women who have fought for our country, fought for our freedom. And sort of in, in honor of, even though it was a few days ago, this message is um, really sparked because of such a day. I thought we'd consider today uh, this idea, this concept of, of medals. And when I think of a medal that one could receive, there's one that strikes the highest above all. Now, I am originally from America, and in America, of course, those who are in the military and those who have fought for their country can receive the medal, what is it called? The medal of, the medal of honor, which is considered the highest medal that one can receive. I believe here in Canada, the, you can, uh, the, Victoria, the Victoria Cross, I believe, is something similar to that. Or I would, I would say it's, it is the same just uh, in this country. But regardless, I think we're all familiar with the concept, the idea of the Medal of Honor receiving something of highest degree. And I thought that we would consider a story today from one of the most decorated soldiers of all time. And this is uh, in, from, from the American perspective, an American soldier who is considered the most decorated of all time. And he's a young man by the name of Audie Murphy. 
And I was going to just tell you the story, but instead we have a, a short little animated clip of these very t talented uh, individuals who put this together. And I want you to watch this. It's just a few minutes long of this particular battle where this young man receives, would, would eventually receive his Medal of Honor. Go ahead. It's January the 26th, 1945, just after 2 p.m. The newly appointed company commander, Ordy Murphy, and more than three dozen American GIs lay down on the snow-covered ground near the town of Holtzfeer in Alsace, France. In the distance, thundering booms from the German artillery are followed by eerie hissing and deafening concussions as incoming shells pulverize the ground, sending shrapnel and frozen earth hurtling through the air. Tasked with holding an important roadway, unbeknownst to Murphy and crew, their reinforcements have been delayed indefinitely. They're on their own, and things are about to go from bad to worse. Through the smoke, Murphy spies more than 200 heavily armed German troops emerging from the wood line just a few hundred yards away. And they have tanks. The only armor the outnumbered and outgunned Americans have is a potent but lightly armored M10 tank destroyer. At just 19 years old, the native Texan with the movie star face already has two silver stars under his belt. Now, faced with lousy odds yet again, he'll have to lead men five and ten years his senior in battle, and maybe to their deaths. Instead, ordering them to withdraw to a defensive position to the rear, Murphy stays behind to radio in artillery support. But he's interrupted when German tankers start opening up on the M10. In a firestorm of muzzle flashes, whizzing shells, and splintering trees, he watches in exasperation as it takes a direct hit and bursts into a fireball. But he holds his ground and manages to transmit coordinates to the artillery battery miles away. Then, moments later, as if by divine intervention, the field between the beleaguered Americans and Germans erupts in a wave of explosions, leaving it cratered and shrouded in smoke. But when the barrage stops and the haze clears, the Germans continue their advance once again. Popping up from his foxhole, Murphy unloads his M1 carbine at them, then grabs the radio and climbs up onto the smoldering tank destroyer. Filled with high-explosive anti-tank shells, the badly damaged M10 could detonate at any moment, but it still has a lethal weapon that hasn't yet been destroyed, a heavy 50 caliber machine gun mounted in an exposed position on top of the turret. Now, clutching the 50 cal's dual grips in his strong hands, Murphy depresses the thumb-activated trigger, sending streams of bullets screaming towards the Germans at nearly 3,000 feet per second. With the advancing infantry running for cover, he ducks behind the turret and again radios artillery. Again, the friendly artillery lights up the field. But the Germans are hell-bent on taking the road, and they keep coming. Scanning the field for more targets, Murphy notices a squad attempting to outflank him on his right, a maneuver they pay for with their lives as he cuts them down with pinpoint fire. As if possessed, he continues firing, holding both infantry and tanks at bay, while from behind, his astonished men marvel at the scene of valor unfolding before them. The hefty machine gun drones on, barrel smoking, crazed Texan at the controls, mowing down the enemy by the dozen all the while directing artillery fire with deadly accuracy. German infantrymen, machine gunners, and tankers riddle the smoldering tank destroyer with small arms and tank fire. 
One exploding tank shell fills Murphy's leg with shrapnel and nearly throws him to the ground. But he fights on, and it's only when he's out of ammo that bloody, dazed and exhausted, he limps back to his men, leaving a field of carnage out of Dante's Inferno in his wake. Murphy later wrote that when it was all said and done, one thought kept racing through his mind. How come I'm not dead? He'd single-handedly held off the Germans for an hour, all told, wounding or killing nearly 50, not counting those who'd fallen to the artillery, he'd called them. But even after reaching relative safety with his men, instead of retreating back to regroup, he rallied them to counterattack, and they ultimately drove the Germans back. For his heroic actions on that day at Holtzfeer, Gordy Murphy was awarded the Medal of Honor and became a national hero nearly overnight. One of his men who'd witnessed his exploits described it as the greatest display of guts and courage I have ever seen. But despite receiving the nation's highest honor for valor, he disliked being labeled a hero. Bravery is just determination to do a job that you know has to be done, he said. And I just fought to stay alive, like anyone else, I guess. Now, we don't normally show videos like this in church, okay? This is a, sort of a once-a-lifetime once a, once a thing. Pastor allowed me to do it. Uh, as I was trying to read the story, it just it sounded too fake, and uh, you had to see it for yourself. And to be fair, this is only one instance where this man did something uh, like this. Uh, this guy, Audie Murphy, uh, born in 1925, was awarded every military combat award that a U.S. soldier could, could receive and was also given uh, French and Belgian awards for heroism. Though he was only around 20 years old at the end of the war, he had uh, killed over 240 German soldiers, had been wounded three times, and had earned 33 different awards and medals. After the war, he, he appeared in more than 40 films he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, throughout his entire life. He was originally unable to enlist as he was deemed too small and too skinny. At barely five foot five, which uh, is much shorter than I am, I'm five foot six, so I wouldn't know what it would be like to be that short. But at only five foot five, a small uh, young man was uh, denied several times, finally was able to get his older sister, you probably heard many stories like this back then, older sister to lie about his age to get him to, to enlist. I, don't, I wonder what his parents would have thought uh, of his older sister letting his, his younger brother, her younger brother do so. But he gets in and he becomes one of the most decorated soldiers of all time. It's stories like this that inspire, that inspire young men, young women, and older men, older women, to, to want to stand up and do something, to, to even to fight for their country, to enlist. And this is just one story of thousands and thousands of young men, young women who have done such courageous things in our lifetime. I could read for you uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 23. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Samuel 23 there is a list of what the Bible calls David's mighty what? Do you know what? David's mighty, I'll say it for you. David's mighty men. I think you know it. It's just it's one of those nights, you know? It's, it's the rain. It's got to be the rain. But David's mighty men, there's a list of David's mighty men. For instance, there's a man named Adino. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. 
800 at one time. Eleazar, the son of Dodo. When they, def- when they defied the Philistines that were gathered, uh, gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave into the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. So here's a guy who would not leave, he would not move, and he would swing and swing till his hand cramped around his sword, and he couldn't even release anymore. He kept fighting and fighting. How about Shammah? Shammah, and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. Here's one guy, everyone's leaving, and he says, no, no, I'm staying, and I'm fighting. And he defended that piece of ground until there were no more to defend. How about Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief among three, and he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them. And he had the name among the three. Or I could talk about Benaiah, the son of a valiant man who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. Lion-like men, men that looked like lions. They were just big, strong. They weren't the prettiest looking guys, but they, they, were, they were the soldiers. They were mean, gruff men. He took them down. He also slew, the Bible says, an actual lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. Maybe they were related. I'm not sure. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. And the Bible says that he plucked the, the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and was able to kill him with his own spear. And I can go on and on about stories like this in the Bible, and you or I would look at these and say, these were courageous men. But you know, as heroic as these stories may seem, I want us to consider today three stories in the Bible that no doubt earned individuals what I would call a heavenly or a medal of heavenly honor. You see, because we can talk about a battle, we can talk about uh, physical war and fighting, but I wonder what kind of heavenly medals people will receive in heaven. For instance, if you could turn, and we're here already in John chapter 6, and I want us to consider this story here this morning. John chapter 6, and we, we know the story already, so we're just going to kind of move along into the, in the story. And let's look in John chapter 6 and let's start in verse 5. And the Bible says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, Well, there is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. <laughs> but what are they among so many? You know the story, the feeding of the 5,000. 
Jesus is preaching, he's teaching to, well, 5,000. You read later on that it's not including the men and women, who knows how many there were, all along the, the hillside, and he's preaching and teaching. And Jesus is, after he's finished, maybe with his first session or his second session, I don't know, he looks and says, and senses these people are hungry. They need food. And we know the story. And I love how what he says here to Philip in chapter five, or verse 5. Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he knew himself what he would do. Jesus was a rhetorical question. He asked Philip, hey, what should we do? He already knew what to do. He just wanted to see what Philip would say. Sometimes parents do that. They ask children rhetorical questions. You know, what should we do? They, parents know the answer, and they know their children don't know the answer, but they just want to hear them make up some crazy answer, and somehow parents find joy in this. I'm not sure why. I guess I'm, one, I'm a parent now, so I, I can relate. Jesus here knew exactly what they would say. They, their answer was disbelief, but here was a young lad who came up. We don't know anything about this kid. We know nothing. We don't know his name, his family, where he comes from, how far he, he walked to get here. All we know is he was a young lad. He had five loaves and he had two fish. I don't even know what kind of fish. I can imagine what kind of fish. I like fish. But it doesn't matter what I think. It was five loaves and two fish. This lad here, if I could say it this way, this little lad gave spontaneously unto the Lord. He gave spontaneously unto the Lord. Spontaneous simply means it's done without planning in advance. It was impulsive. Some of these young men and women who've received Medal of Honors throughout time, it's often given to the soldier that acts out of impulse and duty for their country and fellow soldier. They don't have time to think. They see a need and they take the lead. There's action. There's something that needs to be done. They don't think. They don't sit back and they don't write in their diary. They don't contemplate. But in the moment, in the heat of the battle, they rise up. Courage outweighs fear and they go and do what needs to be done. Sometimes it costs them their life. Sometimes they're victorious. Sometimes they have to retreat in the process. But whatever it is, it's a spontaneous act of service. Here's the story of a little guy who sort of acted spontaneously. I don't know how far he traveled, how long he was there. I don't even know if his parents were there with him. Maybe they were, they were there. But this little lad sneaks up through the crowd of thousands of people, goes up to the front, and somehow knew what Jesus needed. He could sense somehow that what was required, what was needed was food. Perhaps some of the disciples heard Jesus talking to Philip, and perhaps they maybe went down to the first few people in the crowd and just said, hey, do you guys got any food? You know, is there a good restaurant around here? You guys got any money? We can get some food, grocery store around, you know, what can we do? I don't know, maybe the lad overheard, but somehow the lad was able to go up to one of the disciples, to Andrew, and offer him his food. Now, this wasn't perhaps a huge sacrifice for the boy, Maybe the boy had six loaves and he ate one already. You know, we don't know. We don't know the story. But whatever it was, and the boy gave what he had in the spur of the moment. He felt perhaps the spirit of the Lord. He, he saw around, he, he saw the need, and he gave what he had to fill that need. When was the last time that you did something big without thinking too much about it? You know, you, you just did it. 
I was trying to think of an instance where I did something really big and crazy just in the moment. Some people that know me may think I may have a lot of these stories. I tend to be uh, sometimes, I guess, crazy. I don't think that's the right word to say. But I began to realize I'm not a very spontaneous person. If you don't believe me, you could ask my wife. Uh, on our days off, especially when I wake up, I'm not the kind of person to go, ah, let's do something crazy today. Let's drive to Whistler. Some people would, might enjoy that. Just wake up and let's go, let's go, on a, let's go up the Grouse Mountain. That sounds fun. Let's just go up on a hike. I'm usually the kind of person that has to plan things ahead. I need at least a day to do something crazy. Now, you know, if, if, if somebody comes up to me with a great idea, hey, let's just go, let's just go. Well, all right, I'll go. But I'm usually not the person to plan something spontaneous. I remember I was in Bible college, and I heard a pastor, he was giving an illustration, he was telling a story about him and his best friend when they were in Bible college. And they had this thing, which is strange. I'm not telling, saying anybody needs to have this kind of friendship with somebody else. But they would have this weird thing, him and his friend, where a friend would stand up and he would look at his friend. And uh, his name was Kurt. He would say, Kurt, do you love me, Kurt? Kurt would and he would have to. This was a, a pact that they made. He would have to say, I, I don't remember his friend's name. We'll just say Bob. Bob, I love you, Bob. And then Bob would look back and say, Kurt, would you do this with me? And he would say something. And whatever he said, he would have to do it. They would both have to do it, I should say. Now, the, the rule is, though, if he came up with something, now he has a turn to do it sometime in the future. And he had to do it. And if he didn't do it, there was this really big, severe punishment they came up with. So they would go back and forth, and they would do ridiculous things. Now, nothing too dangerous or crazy, but sometimes it was just the most random, spontaneous things. He told the story once. It was the weekend, and his, uh, his friend came up and said, Kurt, do you love me? And Kurt was, you know, right in the middle of doing something. He wasn't really in the mood for this, but he looked over and said, Bob, I love you. He said, Kurt. And now this is, uh, I don't remember exactly, oh, this was over on the East Coast. It was around the Florida area of the United States. And he said, would you come with me to visit my uncle in California tonight? <sighs> Bob, I would love to go with you. And literally, according to the story, Bob says, great. I've already packed your bag. My car's running. Let's go. <laughs> so he got in the car and they drove all night and all day the next day to California literally, now they're in school they can't just leave for an extended period of time they left, they got in there they went to California he literally went, spent an hour with his uncle they got in the car and they had to be back for church on Sunday or they'd get demerits and they drove two days all the way back must have been some kind of uh, small spring break or something, and they came back. To me, that's spontaneous. I don't know what you classify as spontaneous. I can't think of uh, things much different, much worse than that. Spontaneous. And I can't have a story that relates to that, but maybe you could relate to something similar to what I'm about to say. I remember when I was a kid and I'd just gotten saved. And my dad was really trying to teach me the art of tithing. 
the importance of, of giving and the importance of not allowing money to overpower your desire to help people. Money has been given to you from God, so don't be afraid to use that. So I remember I finally, I don't know, I, I did some work around the house. I don't, somehow I was able to get $20, and that's a lot of money. And I'm not that old teenagers. They think I'm ancient. I'm really not that old. But this was back in the, in the late 90s. And $20 was a lot of money. And I remember I'm sitting in missions conference. And the pastor's preaching on giving. And giving. And, and how you can give to missions. And how you could make a difference. And it was as if he looked at me. And he says, maybe you're nine years old in this room today. How did he know I was nine? I mean, we're not, it wasn't a big church. And you know how sometimes a pastor will point? And I promise you, we don't point at people, right? Sometimes we're just preaching and we're just, our fingers just go. And we're not, I'm not really like, some of you need to work on, like, I don't do that. Oh, hi, Leland, sorry. <laughs> but sometimes, but his finger just landed. Poof. I'm pretty sure it was on purpose though, but it landed, it was right at me. And some of you, you may be nine years old. God can use you too. You can give as well. And he's, it felt like his finger, it felt like the entire service. He just, no matter where he walked, even when he sat down, it just kept pointing at me. It wasn't that way. But eventually, I remember I had this $20, and I just felt as if God was saying, Tim, put it in the offering plate. But put it in the envelope and make sure it goes to missions. And it was really the first time in my life where I had planned for that money. I had things I wanted to do, and I'm sure it was useless stuff because I'm nine. What could a nine-year-old do great with a $20, with $20? But I remember for the first time being able to give that money to, uh, to, to the missionaries that were there in an envelope, and I didn't uh, walk up and give it to them, but I did it through the offering. And I just remember thinking at first, no, <laughs> no, I felt... But as soon as it, it left, and as soon as it went, and I went home that night, and I hadn't told my dad what I did, because, you know, he was teaching me, but then I felt like he'd still be mad. I wasn't sure. But I remember that night thinking, I, I, I felt good. It was spontaneous. It was, I hadn't planned on it, but it was as if the Spirit of God was speaking, and I, there was a need. And God allowed me. Now, I don't know what happened to that. I don't know. I don't know if it helped the missionary. I mean, I know it did. I don't know if that night he was $20 short of something and, and my, my, the, the money I gave helped. I don't know. I, I tell you that story because I'm sure there's been instances like this in our lives where we're in church and maybe there's a missionary up or there's a, a need out there and God has spoken to you and you, and you gave over and above what you normally would perhaps. As the offering plate came by, you knew that the Lord was speaking to you to give, and you did. Maybe not even with money, maybe even with time. Oh, we need volunteers to help here, volunteers to help here. Can anybody stay a little bit later tonight? Oh, I had plans, but you spontaneously said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this time unto God. And may I just say this, we need some spontaneous Christians who will put their trust in God by faith and serve him whether it's with our money or with our time, but Christians who won't sit there and overanalyze and overthink. You know, we as, as ch children tend to be more spontaneous than adults. As, we, as our routines grow over time, we, uh, we tend to overanalyze things. Children, they, they have routines, but children have great imaginations. And I forget how wild my imagination must have been now that I have young children. 
and just in the back of the car, just hearing him talk about everything he's thinking about in his head, thinking, my word, <laughs> I couldn't have been like this. Must, must take after your mother. Must be. And my mom would always reassure me, oh, no, no. He, he's just like you. And the older you get, your, your imagination tends to leave us. And that, spon- that spontaneousness that we once had now turns into, well, well, we have to consider this now. You know, before we do something this crazy, we have to, we have to lay the rules. In. And I'm not saying it's not, you need to think things through. Being spontaneous isn't always the answer. But it's spontaneous. It's the spontaneous Christian that God needs. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 says, Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. We as Christians, we hear these promises over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you know, if I give unto the Lord, he'll give it back, and he'll give me back more than what I gave him. We've heard these messages before over and over again, yet we still over-rationalize them. We still don't act upon these promises of God. It's still difficult. Chances are, if you went up to a small kid and you, gave, you said, hey, if you give me a loony, I'll give you a toonie. Okay, now some kids would go, wait, wait a minute. Well, what's, the, well, what's the catch? But I guarantee you, you'd get more children that would go, okay. Boom. And then they'd get the toonie. Now, how many parents could I, could I get on that? If I walked up to a parent, if I walked up to Tadala today, I was like, Tadala. You give me a loony. If you give me your loony right now, I promise you, I'll give you a toony. Now he may do it because what's a loony, right? But in the back of mind, he's probably going, uh, "What's the catch? Is he even gonna give it? He's probably gonna take it and run away and say, gotcha. Now loony is one thing, but what if I said, "Hey, give me a hundred bucks, and tomorrow I'll give you two hundred bucks." Okay, now it's a little different. God promises in His word. Give unto me and I'll give back. I'll give back more. But we as adults, we still overthink. We still rationalize. And God is just looking for people. Now, being spontaneous isn't always good. But if you're spontaneous, if you're, spo- if you're, if you're being spontaneous with God, you can, you can rely on him. If God is asking you to do something, we don't really, we don't need to think about it because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's already thought everything through. We don't need to overanalyze. We just need some Christians today when God is speaking to us to say, okay, Lord, how can I not trust in you? I, could t- I have a story here. I won't say it all just for sake of time. A story of a young man. He was 14 years old. He was trying to enlist himself in World War uh, War I. This is in 1928. He was trying to enlist himself. And in doing so, uh, he was born in 1928. Sorry, so this is for World War II. 14 years old. They wouldn't enlist him, obviously. He's 14. So he ends up uh, sneaking. I don't, once again, the story is crazy, but he somehow sneaks his way into the military. And at a young age, they, they finally figure out, okay, you're way too young. I don't even need ID. I know you're too young. So they got him to help load, load uh, vehicles. But eventually, he wanted to do more, and he was able to sneak, sneak on a ship, and he got sent overseas to Germany. And they, they're there now. They're in combat. What do they do? They, they see this boy still away. So they, they give him gear. They give him a gun, and they just say, look, you stay behind. Don't shoot anybody. Just 
you know, just don't die. Well, a couple days, they were sitting in, the, uh, they were sitting in these underground barracks, and this, uh, they hear gunfire and fighting, and the Germans were getting close, and all of a sudden, a grenade falls right in the middle. And this young boy, 15 years old, pushes his commander out of the way, dives over the grenade, and squeezes it as whole, hard as he can, and takes the blast. Miraculously, he lived, but he never walked again. 15 years old. His life was ruined, though he would receive a Medal of Honor. And later on, they would ask this young man, Jack, Jack, why'd you do what you do? He says, I did what anybody would do. Right? As if he was dumbfounded by the question. It's men like this, it's spontaneous Christians that God is looking for. But it's not just spontaneous Christians. God is also looking for Christians that, wouldn't just, that don't just give spontaneously, but also that would, they would give sensibly. If you could turn really quick to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We know this story, we won't read the whole story. But in Acts chapter 4... In verse 32, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said they any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord and of the and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, of the son and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A medal of honor is also not just given to those men who in the moment in the act stood up and ran for the hills, but oftentimes these great awards are given to people who counted the cost, who thought to themselves, if I enlist, I could die. If I get sent here, I get sent here. We're right in the middle of war. You know, if I volunteer for this, there's, there's a good percentage chance I'll never come back. And if I do come back, I'm, never, I'm not going to be the same. I mean, with PTSD and all these and wars and injuries, I, I don't know what could happen. And no doubt many people tried running and hiding from, from being enlisted. But there were thousands upon thousands of young men and women who voluntarily knew the cost, knew what it would cost them, and still, in their right, sensible minds, having time to think it through, still says, yes, I will do it. Our world, our world is in desperate need of men and women who will count the cost and fight for Jesus. Barnabas here, he was watching people sell. I mean, you read this passage. I just did it quickly. But Jerusalem, now it's a young church, this church in Jerusalem. People were giving unto the Lord. There was people selling houses and selling lands, and Barnabas wanted to be a part of this. 
And I'm sure he thought it through. I'm sure he counted the cost. And he determined, yes, I want to sell my land. And I want to give that money unto the church. I don't know about you. I don't own land. But if I did, to sell that land and to give all of that money away is not usually something you would be encouraged to do. Your financial advisor would say, no, no, you don't sell it all and then give all of it away. Invest. You know, you gotta, you have to, that's not how it works. And Barnabas knew what he was doing, and yet he still determined. He counted the cost. He said, yes, this is what God wants me to do, and this is what I'm going to do. This is the complete opposite of the last uh, person I was speaking of, the, the, the spontaneous. This is somebody who, who, who settles down. He, t- he counts the cost. He, he sees what needs to be done, and he s- still makes that decision to serve the Lord. This is something we would do for big investments or large purchases. There are times even when big decisions for the Lord are needed. You don't just... Uh, on the spur of the moment, unless you have a money tree in your backyard. So a lot of people have that. Uh, you know, they have lots of money and they can just go and, uh, what you do today, honey? I bought a car. what you do with it? I don't even know. I think I put it in garage 17 down the street. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know there are some people like that, but the, the average normal person, they have to think these things through. Can we buy a car? Should we buy a car? Do we have financial, are we financially able to buy a car? Is this going to be smart for us in the future? Are we able to afford this house? Are we, going to, are we, going to, are we going to lose everything if we try to invest in this house? Big investments like this often take time. They take sensibility to think them through. And God sometimes calls upon us to make some big decisions in life. Decisions that shouldn't necessarily be done spontaneously, although it is God saying it. So we'd still be right in doing so. Some that are okay for us to sit back and think, okay, perhaps God is, is asking me to be a missionary, to be a pastor. Lord, I'd love to do so. God, would you use me? Sacrifice Sunday, we have it once a year. We have a, a time in our church where we uh, call upon God's people to consider giving a sacrificial gift. We have needs in the church and we have ministries and, and, and things we'd like to reach with our missionaries for God. And sometimes we'll ask us and we even ask you to, to, to fast just like we are for faith promise. And Lord, what should I give? God, please tell me what to do. I know in your word, if I give, you'll give back. And well, Lord, I would just love to be a blessing. God, what should I do? Faith promise is coming up. Have we started praying about, Lord, what could I give? We look at the missionaries we have here all around the room, missionaries that we're supporting each month, and we want them to stay on the field and keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what faith promise is all about. What could we give? What could we give? Every church needs spontaneous Christians, and every church needs sensible Christians that will count the cost and fight the fight. But our world is in desperate need of this last Christian, this last medal, if I could say it this way. This, if we could turn to our last passage here in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We've looked at a little lad who gave spontaneously. We looked at Barnabas that gave sensibly. But if I could 
end here in Mark 12. Considering today that little lad going up to heaven someday and receiving a heavenly medal. You realize that's the only miracle that's listed in all four of the Gospels. Only of Jesus' miracles on earth that's listed in all four. All because that little lad decided, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to think about this. If I could help Christ, if I could help Jesus, I'm going to do it. Can imagine the, the award. It's not a, he didn't do anything magnificent. He, gave, he just gave a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes. And we didn't see perhaps even thousands of people getting saved, although the Bible d- does say that because they ate, it, it, it alludes to the fact that they were able to stay longer. Jesus could continue to teach these people before they went home. Perhaps his little lunch did so much for the Lord. I, I wonder the kind of award that this little lad's going to receive up in heaven someday. I wonder Barnabas willing, willingly giving a substantial amount of, well, in this case, money unto the Lord, what kind of medal of heavenly honor he'll receive. But this last story here in Mark 12, look in verse 41. The Bible says, And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him, his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance... But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. I don't know if Jesus ever confronted this widow or if any of the disciples did. I don't know if her service was ever even noticed or seen, but I can't help but imagine the medal of spiritual, armor, uh, the medal of spiritual honor that this widow would receive in heaven someday. I know she wasn't like Adino with his spear killing 800 men on the battlefield. That's not the kind of meadow we're talking about here today. We're talking about service unto God. One day getting to heaven, God looking down and saying, well done, thou good and faithful servants. This nameless woman gave her all to God. She gave everything she had. I could read of hundreds of stories of men and women who willingly gave their lives, their physical lives, unto God. Men who willingly did so. When the law was against it, they still went to the stake. Christians getting thrown into lion arenas back thousands of years ago. I could tell you stories of men and women who willingly gave themselves. I could speak of the thousands of individuals and families that sold everything they had to serve the Lord in different countries as missionaries. Families that sold their house, sold their cars, sold their possessions, kept just what they had to, to, to go and follow God, to go to a different country, and to, to learn a language they didn't know, to give their all so that they could do something for God. As we consider this third point here today, a widow who gave sacrificially, who gave even when it hurts. Although I kind of get the feeling as a widow 
probably had given her all before. I don't know. But it almost seemed like nobody saw, nobody noticed. It seemed like she was a nobody. She just snuck into the crowd. She probably just threw, uh, th- uh, threw what she had in and just walked away. Nobody noticed. I kind of helped but wonder if she'd done that before. I could speak of the stories of men and women that gave all the money they could for the cause of Christ through faith promise missions. I wonder how sacrificial we'll be. These men and women have given their all. Couldn't we give a little bit more so that we could reach more people for Christ? I mean, I know money is hard to come by, and I know how hard we have to work to earn that money, to, to keep the bills on, to, to, to keep our children fed. I, I, realize, I realize this, but I also realize that God has promised over and over again, trust me with what you have, and I'll take care of you. What better way to, to use our money than to give it back to the person that gave it to us and let that money help reach more missionaries and the gospel be spread even further? Of these 3,508 total recipients of the Medal of Honor, 618 of them were awarded after that individual had already died. It could have happened several, you know, when the war had finished, and uh, in uh, in order for somebody to receive the Medal of Honor, there has to be witnesses. It can't just be one guy claiming, you know, fame and glory. There has to be witnesses, and many times men would say, sir, the only reason we're here is because so-and-so jumped on that grenade. Or because so-and-so led us in the battle, he told us to stay behind, and he ran forward, he was killed, but because of him, we were able to conquer that hill. Many, 618 were given to men who died. Some of them were also awarded uh, decades and decades later, as they were recognized, and they would go back in time, and a president would, would remember a story, would nominate the nearest kinsman, and give them that Medal of Honor. This is my point. God doesn't just recognize the pastors that hold meetings above 10,000 people or the evangelists that have saved thousands of lives through the gospel or the missionary that's won entire villages for the, for the cause of Christ. And he does recognize those people. But God knows the hearts and lives of every believer, like that nameless widow. Nobody knew the sacrifice she made. Nobody knew. Jesus knew. He pointed it out to his disciples. That widow woman probably had no idea that anybody had recognized her sacrifice. And I know there are people in this room and in our church and in churches all around the world that have sacrificially given, not even just money, but given their time, given their talents, given their, their, their possessions for the cause of Christ that have gotten up on Saturdays, even if it was raining, and came to church and grabbed some, some gospel tracts and still went out and tried to tell people about Jesus. People that have spent hours throughout the week planning and preparing lessons. And, and even if it's just for a, a handful of children, but they've faithfully done so year after year after year. Even when that pandemic went down, many of us still got together and still did our best and went over and above to try to reach people for the, for the cause of Christ. 
Many of you have taken work off to come and help in ministries, to help in our children's uh, VBSs and, and camps. And I realize today that some of us may feel a bit discouraged, like no one's noticed. And to be honest, maybe none of us have noticed. And maybe we never will notice the sacrifice you've made. But God sees it all. And you will be rewarded someday for your efforts. The world is an unforgiving place. And pastors are imperfect. And people are imperfect. We don't always notice everything that goes on. And to be fair, Christians aren't supposed to do things to be noticed. Like this widow. She was just a humble individual, from what we can tell, who gave her all for Christ. We may never receive a reward in person, but our faithfulness to God will be seen. I'll end with this verse. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall receive, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I know the world is tough, but this world desperately needs some spontaneous Christians, some spontaneous soldiers some sensible soldiers who will count the cost and do what is necessary, but this world is in desperate need of some sacrificial soldiers of our king. So my challenge to you, stay faithful today. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.